Well, I too want to thank our organizers for organizing this incredibly fantastic symposium. Nick and Jane and Marin and Adam, oops, Adam, <laughs> thank you so much for all you've done. It's just been a, a wonderful symposium so far. Um, I wanted also to begin just with a little tiny bit of an introduction of how I came to find Ibn Arabi, and I want to point out that a very good friend of mine and my first spiritual teacher, Wahab Baldwin, is here for this conference, and I want to personally thank him because it was through Wahab sitting around the swimming pool at Bashara Cuernavaca that I was first introduced to Ibn Arabi. And as some of you probably have had the same experience, you remember the first chapter of the Fasus that you ever read and, and how strange it was and how wonderful it was and it stays with you like that. And I remember one line in particular from that day and it was, all movement is through love and I've never forgotten that. It's just such a, it's really is the quintessence of Ibn Arabi. <laughs> so as soon as I find my uh, paper, I'll start to read it. these other things that tell me what the temperature is in several hundred countries. Uh, okay, here we go. In the year 1193 or 4, the 29-or-30-year-old Ibn Arabi entered the way station which, drawing from a number of Quranic verses, he calls God's vast earth. It is a way station associated with symbols, puzzles, and enigmas, rumuz, he entered it in a most dramatic way, as he recounts in the Futuhat. While praying with a congregation in Tunis, without being in any way aware of it, it's hard to think of Ibn Arabi not being aware of anything, Ibn Arabi let out a cry so startling that the people around him fainted, some women even falling from the terraces of the adjoining houses. He himself also lost consciousness for a time. When he came to, he asked others what had happened. You tell us, they said. What had happened was that the mosque's imam had recited the verse, O oh, my servants who believe, surely my earth is vast, so worship me. And hearing this verse catapulted the young Ibn Arabi into the real earth, the earth of undelimited imagination, an earth so vast that it contains immaterialized bodies, and materialized spirits, the temporarily contingent and the eternal. It is an earth where all mystical visions take place, including post-mortem events preceding the resurrection. At various junctures in the Futuhat, Ibn Arabi alludes to this earth. Chapter 8, for example, is exclusively concerned with a description of God's vast earth and we will refer to some of the extraordinary events that he recounts therein. But this is not the only place in what we might call Ibn Arabi's vast treatise that this earth is described. In what follows, we will visit this vast earth and seek to understand what it is, what types of events and experiences take place there, and why Ibn Arabi connects it to servanthood. Why he claims that ever since that fateful day in Tunis, he has been worshiping nowhere else but in God's vast earth. 
Chapter 8 of Ibn Arabi's Futuhat begins, as do most of his chapters, with an extraordinary poem in which he addresses a palm tree as Adam's sister, our aunt, whom God formed from the fermented clay left over from Adam's creation. It seems that here we have already entered into a world of symbolic events, and we wonder what is going on? What does Adam have to do with a palm tree? And why is a palm tree such an important figure, so much so that Ibn Arabi calls her the female imam, the imama? In the Islamic context, the palm tree plays a part in a number of striking historical and spiritual events. To begin with, calling the palm tree Adam's sister and our aunt did not originate with Ibn Arabi. The prophet Muhammad is the source of this claim. Honor your paternal aunt, the date palm, because it was created out of the earth left over after the creation of Adam. In the prophet's own life, palms played an important part. Tradition tells of a stump of a, of a date palm that cried like a she-camel when the prophet's pulpit was made, since he would henceforth no longer deliver his sermons beside her. In an act of beautiful compassion, he went over to the palm trunk and put his hand on her in consolation. A curious story is also told about Ibn Arabi having a vision about the prophet straightening a crooked date palm in Seville. The neighbors had complained to the ruler that the tree could fall down and damage their houses, so the tree was to be cut down in the morning. The palm tree plowed through the garden until she reached the prophet, who was sitting in the mosque in the middle of the garden, and beseeched him to help her. He put his hand on her, and immediately she stood up straight and tall. In the morning, when the townsfolk went to the garden, they were amazed to see the palm tree no longer bent. Al-Khazwini said, in his Wonders of Creation. The prophet said, honor your date, and the, um, the, the date palm. He called it date palm because it was created from the remainder of Adam's clay. It resembles the human being in respect of the erectness and tallness of its figure, the absence of twists and knots in its stems and branches, and the distinction of its male from female. It dies when its head is cut off. Its seeds smell like sperm, and the covering of its fruits resembles the membrane that encloses the fetus. If one of its branches is cut off, it will not be replaced, like the organ of a human body, and it is covered with fiber that resembles the hair of humans. But even after the creation of the palm tree from Adam's molding, there was yet another remnant of clay, the size of a sesame seed. And I like what Hani had said about the seed, that really, you know, the seed that in love expands and becomes a plant. Despite the diminutive size of the seed, God formed from it a vast earth, the true earth. It is the alternative earth discussed by Henri Corbin, also known as the Alama Amithal, or world of likenesses or archetypes. It lies like an isthmus between two worlds, generally more familiar to us, the earth that we know from our senses and the intelligible universe of the purely spiritual beings. It is a liminal intermediate realm, often called in Arabic barjah, from a well-known verse in the Quran. He has loosed the two seas, they meet, there is a barrier, barjah, between them, they encroach not one upon the other. The organ of perception in this earth is the imagination, but it is far from what we understand by the term. To the mystics, this is an ontological level and a true earth. 
What are the topological features of this vast earth? What are some of the ways in which Ibn Arabi describes it? He calls it the widest known thing, vaster by far than this physical world. He says it is neither existent nor non-existent, neither known nor unknown, neither negated nor affirmed. Ibn Arabi writes that imagination rules over nature and embodies it however it wills so that it is a branch that rules over its root. God brought nothing into existence more magnificent in way station or more inclusive in property. Its ruling property permeates all existent and non-existent things, even the impossible. Hence, among the things that the divine power has brought into existence, none is more magnificent than imagination. Through it, the divine power and the divine potency become manifest. This is the presence of the locus of the divine disclosure at the resurrection and within beliefs. It is the greatest of God's waymarks pointing to God. Imagination, says Ibn Arabi, is a womb, like a suprasensory marriage and a suprasensory pregnancy. God opens up suprasensible meanings within this womb. Suprasensible meanings here being symbols, concrete images married to conceptual ones knowledge in the form of milk, honey, wine, and pearls, Islam in the form of a dome and a pillar, the Quran in the form of butter and honey, religion in the form of a fetter, God the real in the form of a human being or a light. It is also like the Holy Spirit who became imaginalized to Mary in the form of a well-proportioned mortal man. The imagination, though vast, has one limitation. It must be represented in form. Thus, because of, its, because of its limitation, it is both vast and narrow, while God is the vast absolutely. Although God's vast earth is not of the senses, it may appear to the senses, the immaterial clothing itself in sensible form, because most souls are unable to perceive, perceive anything that is not material. When this is the case, the situation is like when God the real, who on one hand is completely transcendent and like unto nothing else, discloses God's self in forms and likenesses. God's vast earth, according to Ibn Arabi, is a world of paradox, where the large fits into the small. For instance, where gigantic fruits are plucked from golden trees, but still remain on them. It is a fantastic place of fragrances, jewels, and pleasures of all sorts. Everything is in it is alive and speaking, high nautic, something the speciesists, philosophers, assigned only to the human being as the very definition of the species. As Ibn Arabi writes, the whole, of, the whole world is intelligent, living, speaking, but they, the people of reflective thought, say, this is an inanimate object. It has no intelligence. They stop with what their eyesight gives to them, while we consider the situation differently. Thus, when it is reported that a stone or a shoulder of a lamb or a stump of a date palm or a wild animal spoke to a prophet, these people say that it is because God created life and knowledge within that thing at that time. But we do not see the situation like that. On the contrary, the mystery of life fills the entire world. 
Those who access the barzakh of the imagination in this life are given a foretaste of the world to come, which is called the greater barzakh. The greater barzakh, according to Islamic belief, occupies the liminal space between the life of this world and the resurrection. It is a world similar to the one we inhabit while alive, but it is a world where physical matter has been replaced by immaterial forms, like in a dream. Things that are impossible in ordinary consciousness, such as the dead interacting with us, feats such as flying through the air, walking on water, intense sensations such as, the, as enjoying the fruits of paradise, are easily accomplished in the Varzakh. The greater and the lesser Varzaks have much in common in this regard. And if a person is able to access God's vast earth in this lifetime, everything that will be experienced by the soul post-mortem will be experienced by the visionary in this life. Of notice, the famous hadith where God in the next world discloses himself to the believer in a form farthest from the one in which they recognize him. This causes the form-fixated worshiper to deny that form and to seek refuge from the strange form by appealing to the form they are familiar with. After any number of transmutations the divinity may undergo, he then transforms himself back into that old familiar form they know and love. One may, for example, go through life refusing to see God in any form other than a stern but kindly patriarchal figure with a long white beard. Then, in the Varzakh, you may be confronted by a female Kali destroyer that frightens the living daylights out of you. A person who has come to the realization in this lifetime that forms are fluid and that beliefs really can be fetters, can say with Ibn Arabi, you could probably all join in with me, <laughs> my heart has become capable of every form. <laughs> it is a pasture for gazelles and a convent for Christian monks and a temple for idols and the pilgrim's kava, and the tables of the Torah, and the book of the Quran. The realm of the imagination, the barzakh, God's vast earth, is where miraculous events take place. Events such as being fed by unseen hands, crossing great distances in the blink of an eye, walking on air and water, assuming different forms, including those of animals and plants, it's like Don Juan, <laughs> Yeah, all of this in different places while simultaneously remaining exactly where one is. It is a realm where paradoxical dwells, things deemed impossible by the rational faculty happen here. The small fits into the large, animals, plants, and inanimate objects speak, the dead come to life, the metaphorical camel passes through the metaphorical needle. Chapter eight of the Futuhat is full of stories of this sort such as the story of a certain Ibn Abbas and his encounters in the Assembly of Mercy, where he is shown alternate worlds where other Ibn Abbas's live, and other Kaabas are circumambulated. Stories of the earths of musk, red, gold, silver, and camphor, where the trees are of precious metals and the fruits are so large, they block the sun. I did want to present, but I don't have the att attachment there. If any of you remember Woody Allen in uh, Bananas, right? Was it bananas? I think it is. Anyway, he's there with his gigantic fruit, bananas, huge apple, but I can't show it to you, so imagine it. He was there. <laughs> Woody Allen knew all about it. <laughs> uh, so these are so large they block the sun. 
but they fit into the palm of your hand. There's the harrowing story of an earthquake that presages the death of a daughter. Some think that this was Ibn Arabi's daughter, Fatima. The story of a fantastic ship made of magnetic stones that sails on a river of mud. And to me, the most fascinating of all, the story of the Sinjar Road. And thank God for Google, because I Googled the Sinjar Road to find out if such a place really existed, and it certainly does. And it certainly is contested these days. It's been in the news since, I think, I don't know, whenever it was that the ISIS overran that part of uh, Iraqi Kurdistan. And Sinjar Road and the Sinjar Mountain, big mountain, lots of hairpin turns, that's where the Yazidis live. And as we recall, the Yazidis were massacred and pillaged and raped and horrible things, enslaved. So the Sinjar Road really does appear even now. So this story is told in two places of the Futuhat. The one in chapter eight is really the shorter of the versions. The one in, uh, I forget what chapter it is. I don't have the footnote here, but it's more, uh, it's, it's more extensive, but it's basically the same thing. It is recounted by a friend of Ibn Arabi, Al-Kirmani, perhaps best known as a poet and proponent of gazing upon young men as manifestations of the beloved. That was a very controversial practice, as some of you can imagine. It is a mysterious tale of a person divesting himself of physicality and manifesting in the body of another person. Al-Kirmani tells us, I was in the service of a sheikh when I was young. The sheikh became ill and was gripping his belly. When we reached Takrit, I said to him, Oh, master, allow me to go and ask for some binding medicine from the master of the Sinjar Road. When he saw my burning sorrow for him, he said to me, Go to him. So I went to the master of the road, who was sitting in his tent, his men sitting before him, a torch in front of him. He didn't know me, and I didn't know him. He saw me standing among the group and came toward me, taking me by the hand, and asked me, what is your need? So I mentioned to him the sheikh's condition. He called for the medicine and gave it to me. He accompanied me outside, along with a servant bearing a torch. I was afraid the sheikh would see him and get annoyed, so I entreated him to return, and he returned. Then I came to the sheikh and gave him the medicine. I mentioned the honor that the amir, the master of the road, had given me. The sheikh smiled and said to me, my son, I was concerned for you when I saw how sad you were on my account, so I let you go. But when you had gone, I was afraid that the emir would embarrass you by not rec receiving you. So I divested myself of my body and entered that of the emir and sat down in his place. When you came, it was I who greeted you and acted toward you as you saw. Then I returned to my body. I don't need this medicine. I have no use for it. <laughs> Most of, this, of these stories in chapter 8 are ascribed to other narrators, but some are undoubtedly things that happened to Ibn Arabi himself. The Futuhat is replete with Ibn Arabi's accounts of visionary meetings with remarkable individuals, alive and dead, animals and stones who speak, including the Kaaba, which is really some of the most marvelous passages in the Futuhat, his conversations with the, uh, with the Kaaba, who, who is just, oh, what a character. Amazing. <laughs> um, 
other and other events that might inspire incredulity. Throughout the Futuhari describes the things that are possible in this vast earth, things that the intellect says are impossible, including the coexistence of opposites, physical bodies being in two places at one time, accidental qualities arising and disappearing without any apparent cause, things taken as symbols and metaphors in the scriptures being literally true in this earth, and as already mentioned, spirits taking corporeal shape and bodies becoming spiritualized. He emphasizes that the membrane of the Barzakh allows for an interchange between two otherwise unbreachable realms of the purely spiritual and the resolutely physical. Without this interworld, we could never approach the ineffable. As noted above, Ibn Arabi draws a connection between the world of the imagination, God's vast earth, and the servant's worship as a divinity. How is this so? In the wondrous tale spun in chapter eight of the Futuhat, this emphasis is entirely lacking. Yet, the aspects of servanthood and worship are an integral part of God's vast earth, and there is no access to this elevated form of worship without a realization of what true servitude con consists of. Citing a verse in the Quran that refers to God's vast earth, O oh, my servants who believe my earth is vast, therefore worship me, the very verse that caused Ibn Arabi to lose consciousness when praying behind the Imam in Tunis, the Sheikh seeks to explain the connection between the worship of believing servants and God's vast earth. This he does explicitly in chapter 351 of the Futuhat, where he describes servanthood as complete and pure submission that stems from the servant's very essence. It is not something imposed on the servant by any sort of religious law. Rather, it is an ontological reality. If someone consciously fulfills servanthood's, servanthood's claim, which appears to be one's recognition, recognition of one's true status vis-a-vis -vis one's Lord, his or her very behavior in all places and at all times is an act of worship. Ibn Arabi flatly states that this form of worship on the part of God's servant is realized only by those who inhabit God's vast earth, the earth of God. Adding an autobiographical aside, he states, I myself have been worshiping God in this place ever since the year 590, 1193, and we are now in the year 635, 1237. The servant remains a servant forever and he remains in this earth forever. He goes on to say that the very nature of this earth is such that the believing servant who worships in it becomes paradoxically the recipient of absolute divine sovereignty. Somehow, the servant must simultaneously hold the notions that he is created upon the form of God and that ontologically he is the lowest of low and utter servant. He remains in the state forever, which is why Ibn Arabi then quotes the Prophet Muhammad, who says, there is no exile after the conquest. A person who reaches the level of per perfect servanthood, a level that Ibn Arabi claims he reached on that fateful day in Tunis, sees God in all things, or in an even higher state, sees with God's eyes. God is thus never absent from such a person, and this person can never be in exile. Wherever he may be, he remains at home in God's vast earth. In another passage, Ibn Arabi remarks, you should know, dear brother and sister, he doesn't say that, but I do, 
that the earth of your body is the true vast earth in which the real commanded you to worship him. The command to worship him in this earth is in effect only as long as spirit dwells in the earth of one's body. When spirit leaves the body, the command to worship him will drop away, even though the body continues to exist buried within the earth. This earth is nothing other than your body. God made it vast because of the faculties and supersensible meanings that are found only in this human bodily earth. Whoever does not worship God in the vast earth of his body, he says, has not worshiped him in the earth from which he was created. In chapter 174 of the Futuhat, Ibn Arabi speaks about how the common people interpret the verse, O oh, my servants who believe, surely my earth is vast, therefore worship me. As a motivation for spiritual wandering, siyaha, they interpret vast earth quite literally as all unoccupied earth without any owner but God, devoid of human habitation. It is a land whose only characteristic is that there's not a soul, not a breath in it, except for the breath, the breath of the all-compassionate. This seeker betakes himself to deserted and wild places where he can be alone with God and engaged in his worship, and in this solitude he finds relief from civilization. He begins to see signs, wonders, and lessons that lead him along a path to praise and glorification of God, and through increased elimination he, re he acquires knowledge of the divinity and comes to share in the prophetic heritage gained by the prophet Muhammad during his night journey when he was shown the signs of God. How the servant progresses from illumination to illumination, knowledge to knowledge, is described as a classic case of etibar, or crossing over from the manifest to the unmanifest. When they see a mountain peak, they recall their own nobility and sublimity. When they are in a deep gorge or canyon, on the, on the other hand, they recall their servanthood and humbleness, realizing that whatever sublimity they reach is only through God's providential solicitude for them, not through anything they inherently merit. Standing by the ocean shore, the sea reminds them of God's infinite knowledge, magnificence, and compassion. They contemplate how the winds cause the waves to crash against each other, reminding them of the interplay of the divine names, some opposing others. With respect to the wild animals who seek their company, some of these wandering mystics are able to speak to the animals in their own language and can see how they worship God. This increases their own eagerness to serve their Lord. Thus, through nature's signs, God opens up and reveals to their innermost selves ways of knowing him that they could only gain in this fashion. I have tried to give a sense of Ibn Arabi's complicated and complex idea of God's vast earth, a central doctrine in his vast corpus. Of course, there is so much more to read and research, reflect on and work out, including the mechanics and technology of this vast earth, how can one cross into it? How can we do it? And what can keep you from it? Well, that's uh, more than obvious in many ways. Um, forever, we, we remain forever immersed in the, the world of senses if we can't make that transition, that crossover to the, the vast earth of the imagination. But these await another time, beginning with this afternoon's workshop, which I'll be talking a lot more about etibar in, because it's, it's a concept that 
I really, I, I knew it was there, you know, if you read the, the Futuhas, you get to those chapters about, you know, that are on the, you know, the pillars of Islam and ha, the Hajj and fasting and, and zakat and everything. And almost every single, well, I think probably, I don't know, almost every, I'll say, because I don't know. Every one of these, he has, he states the, you know, the legal, pre the precept in all of these cases. There's so many of them. And then he says, and the itibar is, and he goes into this wonderful crossover to another step up. That um, it's, it's really amazing. So he, he has made a transition from a crossing over from something that seems very, you know, legal, legalese and so forth and opens it all up into another dimension. And I really wasn't, you know, and you hear, if you read it, Henri Corbin, you, you hear a lot about tawil. That's the word, you know, tawil is this, tawil that. And there isn't really that much positive that even Arabi says about tawil, and at least not in the Fujuhat. He does use it, you know, from time to time. But he's often very critical of it. I think in many cases he, considers it a, you know, an intellectual exercise, a rational exercise, uh, going back, a ta'wil, going back to, you know, the original. For him, crossing over is kind of a crossing over, like you cross over the wadi. You, you, you know, it's a forward movement. And, and, and it's all over Ibn Arabi. The more you, you look at it, the, the more you find it. It pops up everywhere. And I just really, you know, I wasn't aware of it until, um, I don't know what happened. It just sort of, Oh, this is really strange. I think, you know, I, I was rereading Corbett, as a matter of fact, and I was thinking, Tawil, you know, it's really funny, Tawil. These, these, you know, poets, modern poets have been so inspired by Corbett's Tawil, and they, they love this and, and so forth. But it's really not, you know, it's not as prevalent as, as Itibar. And so that's what I'm going to be talking about in the workshop. So, thank you.